to tell us a bit about yourself. Um, Lee, big question. How did you come to be the director of Church Society? Tell us a bit about your, your story. Thanks. Um, well, uh, when somebody first suggested to me that I should go into ordained Anglican ministry, I remember that, that day uh, at university. They said, oh, you're, you're keen, Christian. You know, you like all this stuff. You should, you should be a vicar or something. I just ran a mile in the other direction. I thought, what a waste of time. Why on earth would I want to waste my life cycling round little villages, taking tea and eating cucumber sandwiches with the elderly saints of the parish? What a waste of time. But it was then, the next few years, the Lord kind of humbled me and taught me what it was actually really about. So as I got in, stuck into a Bible teaching church and came alive more spiritually myself and understood what, what it was to be in ministry and to see people um, have their eyes pop when they understand something from the Bible for the first time. As I experienced that and for myself and then saw it happen in others in Bible studies, I thought, wow, it'd be an amazing thing to spend my life doing this to teach the Bible and get paid for it. That sounds great. And that was when the Lord said to me, no, you're not good enough and I don't want you. Um, and I, I just thought, I, I'm not, you know, that's such a noble task. I would never be up for it. And I met some people who were studying um, at uh, Wycliffe Hall and I just thought, wow, they, these are great guys. How would I ever be a holy Bible teacher, um, preacher like that. Is that why you didn't go to Wycliffe? <laughs> um, well, I did Oxford, you know, didn't want to go there again. So, um, yeah, I, I, so I, I went, did the Cornhill training course and learned a bit more how to preach, how to understand the Bible. And then I got a lot more out of theological college as a result of, of doing that, I felt, because I, I was a bit further back. I wanted more um, teaching and help. Um, and then I was a curate in Northampton, very close to here. Um, just down the road um, in Barton Seagrave and Walkton, two, two churches on the outskirts of Kettering, bustling metropolis I'm sure you've heard of. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> you have because your dad's the vicar there, isn't he now? Um, so, yeah, I did, did my curacy there. And I do remember my first week as a curate, having been ordained, the vicar said, I want you to come along to um, an event that we're having in the church. And, uh, so there I found myself. My first week as an ordained minister in the Church of England, taking tea and eating cucumber sandwiches, literally eating cucumber sandwiches with the elderly saints of the parish. And I did have a get, I sort of looked and I thought, I remember this was the exact thing I didn't want to do, but now I was thrilled to be doing it. Yeah. Um, after, after that curacy, I was um, associate minister in, in charge of the Sunday morning congregation at St. Helen's Bishopsgate and the, the staff team there, the, sort of the ordinary church things at St. Helens, not the students, not the city, just the ordinary people and Bible study groups and so on, and mission partners. Um, uh, and in then, and then yes, I was involved yeah. in church yeah. society, so I, I, I was a, mem you know, a member uh, since the, the 1990s and was involved with churchmen doing reviews and that kind of thing, taking all the free books that were on offer. Um, and then after I, I'd done a PhD, I was looking around for a job and church society came to me and said, well, David Phillips has just moved on. We need a new director. How do you fancy that? So, yeah, here I am. Fantastic. I have my arm twisted. And um, on behalf of all of us, um, thank you so much to you, Ros and David, for all you do to organise conferences like this. Um, Those but guys. you've got... Um, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but your, your plans for the rest of the year are slightly different this year. Yeah. Sabbatical coming up. Just briefly, what have you got planned for that? 
Yeah, it's great. So I've done seven years now um, as director of Church Society, and so I, I asked if I could have a sabbatical, and they said yes. Ooh. Um, Ros wasn't cheering at that point, because she's going to be acting director probably at that point. Um, yes, yeah, so I've got three months or so um, where I don't have to go to all the meetings um, and take the phone calls and that sort of thing. So I've got some writing projects planned, um, some things that I've, I've tried to tinker with anyway over the last few years, some things that are well overdue, daily readings in John Owen, um, uh, that Christian Focus have asked me to produce and a pocket guide to John Owen's theology. I don't know how I'm going to do that. A uh, hundred pages it's supposed to be. I mean, that's less like one sentence for John Owen, but um, I'll give it a go. So some things like that. Thank you. Some books, hopefully. And, you know, a bit of jogging, a bit of yeah. getting fit and sleeping in, uh, going on holiday, that kind of thing. Great. Well, um, Lee, do take your seat. I'll pray and then um, I'll hand over to you for your address. Let's pray. Our Lord God, as we come to consider Christ again now, we ask that you would illuminate our minds, that you'd soften our hearts, and that you'd so order our affections that we might more and more accept him as our Redeemer and Lord. And we pray, according to your immeasurable grace, that you would strengthen us in the faith and bring us uh, spiritual comfort and uh, maturity and confidence in you through your word to us this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Over to you, Lee. Thank you. Well, as Jake said, in a slight change to what's on the program, um, I want to talk now about the uniqueness of Christ, which Andrew has already alluded to in his talk, as something which is hugely important for us as Anglican evangelicals in the Church of England. This mantra, all roads lead to God, is not a new one at all, yet it is a view which has gathered significant traction both within and outside our churches in recent years. In a world where truth, morality and ethics are often seen to be relative, what place does the church have in declaring that Jesus is uniquely the way, the truth, the life? And what does the church mean when it proclaims Christ alone as saviour? So this session, we're going to explore the tensions of proclaiming Jesus as Lord, not a Lord, but the Lord, in a world that so often rejects absolutes. Because that is what we as Anglican evangelicals are most interested in, isn't it? We don't want it ever to be said that we're only ever interested in talking about sex and gender. I mean, I didn't get ordained because I wanted to stand up and talk about sex in public. I mean, if that's why you want to get ordained, please don't. <laughs> you know, that was the furthest thing from my mind. No, I didn't get ordained for that reason. What we're most interested in, I hope, is proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. An absolute truth in an age of fake news and confused pluralism, which has no real answers. The absolute that I, I think we are united in believing here is the historic, mainstream Christian faith. 
That faith, according to the Church of England, is uniquely revealed in the Holy Scriptures and set forth in the Catholic creeds. It is the faith to which the 39 Articles and the 1662 Book of Common Prayer bear witness. Our mission is to proclaim afresh in our generation the saving gospel so that people may repent and believe the good news of Jesus. Although we don't often hear that word very often these days, the message of Jesus was summed up by the gospel writers as repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent must be the core of our message too. Repent means calling people to change direction, to turn away from something that is not good and to turn towards Jesus instead. Because each and every one of us is bent towards sin. None of us is entirely straight. We deserve to perish, not to have eternal life. And yet God so loved rebellious humanity that he gave his only son so that we can be rescued from an eternity under God's righteous anger and enjoy his glorious blessing instead. When the church promotes human ideas over revealed truth, it loses its God-given authority and the hope that we have in the gospel. The only escape from sin and death and hell is Jesus. The only one. Brothers and sisters, this is our faith. The faith of Christians across the world and across history. But it is a faith that is widely unknown in England today and subversively undermined and supplanted in much of the Church of England today. So we need to renew our confidence once and for all in the gospel as it was once and for all delivered to us and be clear in the saving proclamation of the gospel in the hope that God will once again pour out his spirit and bring revival to our spiritually needy land. So to help us renew that confidence, let's look at what the Bible says about Jesus Christ as our unique and only saviour. And let's unpack a little bit of what our historic formularies teach on this subject as well. This is the inheritance of faith that we pledge our loyalty to as Anglicans. When we get ordained, if that's something that's in the future for you or in the past, when you get ordained, when you go to an ordination and you hear ministers making these promises, they pledge their loyalty to this inheritance of faith. And it is this faith, I contend, which alone can bring refreshment and renewal to the parched spiritual soil of our nation. So first, to the Bible. Because our faith is uniquely revealed in the Holy Scriptures, as Andrew read out for us in the canons of the Church of England. Our faith is uniquely revealed in the Bible. And if you want to turn to it, or scroll down to it, if you have one of those paper Bibles that some people are now using these days, this trendy thing, or if you just want to use the old-fashioned phone Bible, click on it. Look at John chapter uh, 14. Let's look at John 14. Verses 1 to 7. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. I love preaching on that passage at funerals. Because this is the only faith which can calm a troubled heart. Faith in Christ, the way, the truth, the life. Nothing else is good enough. Nothing else is satisfying enough in life or in death. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. He is the only way to the Father. The only way to know the Father. And the only way to everlasting, satisfying life. That's the purpose of John's Gospel. After all, isn't it, as you know, to persuade us that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name, a life beyond death, a life where the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins does not rest upon us. John 3, 36. So as uh, Pope Leo the Great said in the fifth century, Christ is the way of holy living the truth of divine doctrine and the life of eternal happiness. But that is an uncomfortably exclusive claim for our modern society to hear, isn't it? There are not many paths up the same mountain, a number of options, truth in many different religions. Jesus claims he is it. So as Hilary of Poitiers expounds this, he who is the way does not lead us into bypaths or trackless wastes. He who is the truth does not mock us with lies. He who is the life does not betray us into delusions which are death. And so except through him, there is no approach to the father, but there is also no approach to him unless the father draws us so if you want to know god if you want to enjoy what he has to offer there is only one choice only one jesus has a monopoly on truth he didn't say to thomas now listen thomas if you want to know god just spend some time talking to people from lots of different religions. There's truth in all of them, Thomas. And if you are discerning and patient and perhaps meditate on it in the quiet of your own heart, you will eventually ascend and have a taste of the truth. No. Jesus said, as Cyril of Alexandria puts it, he himself is the truth. He is the way, that is, the true boundary of faith and the exact rule and standard of an unerring, inerrant conception concerning God. 
And so no one, therefore, will come to the Father, that is, will appear as a partaker of the divine nature, except through Christ alone. To back away from that exclusivity and uniqueness seems today, to many people, to be a very humble thing to do. Doesn't it? They back away from this because they want to be humble. We must not claim to have it all. We mustn't be seen to be against other religions. This is arrogant, exclusivist, and probably partakes of a hundred newly minted phobias. It's certainly not politically correct. It could, in some people's eyes, be spiritually abusive. And I can feel the inner discomfort myself just repeating these things to you. Because I share in the cynicism of our generation at all claims to absolute truth. And the suspicion and the scepticism that our culture has about extreme black and white positions. I feel all that, and yet, which Christian is going to tell Christ that he was wrong? Which Christian would have the impertinence to say that Jesus was an extremist and he needed to just tone it down a bit? Who else has the words of eternal life? Who else? Where else are we going to go? Who else loved so much? Who else backed up his claims with such a death, such a resurrection? I don't really know what else to do but to say, as Christians always have, without any improper pressure to convert, that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through him. I don't think I need to belittle or ridicule others in order to affirm that, to affirm what Jesus affirmed. The apostles seemed to get the message, and they were far braver and far bolder than I ever am. In Acts chapter 4, you'll remember, Peter told the rulers, the elders, the scribes of the people of Israel that Jesus is the all-powerful ruler prophesied in Scripture. And Peter said to them, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Buddha. Confucius. Muhammad. Didn't they all have something there? There is no other name by which we must be saved. Only Jesus shows us the Father. Paul was also an exclusivist, an extremist on some people's reckonings. He said, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whoa, what a truth. What a thing to say if you're a Jew. You know, because the Old Testament said that at the name of Yahweh, at the name of the Lord, every knee should bow in Isaiah 45 verse 23 at the name of the lord every knee should bow paul says at the name of jesus 
every knee will bow. And some people say Paul doesn't have a high Christology. He knows what he's doing when he says this. He is claiming Jesus is God, the one and only true God. So we do not encounter something of God in other religions that we do not have in Christ. As my good friend, the former Zoroastrian and now Christian scholar, Rohinton Modi, has shown in a recent book, the early Christians thought other religions were empty and evil. That's the name of his book, Empty and Evil. There's a picture of it there, with a lovely picture of Roe on the front. No, uh, that's not him on the front. I think his picture's on the back. No, you see, these other religions that people were following, and that are following today, are co-opted by demons to bring people into their spiritual orbit and keep them away from Christ. Because Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, what pagans sacrifice... They offer to demons and not to God. So we must not mix and match in religion the way that modern consumer culture has taught us to do in so many other spheres of life. Other religions do not point us to God, but away from God, to something else. Not to God as he is uniquely and definitively revealed in Christ. Now, you know and I know that many people disagree with that. I know some think that we can learn about God by talking to people who worship other gods. But again, to quote Pope Leo the Great, if in spite of the truth being so clear, their persistence in heresy will not abandon their position in the darkness... Let them show whence they promise themselves the hope of eternal life, which no one can attain to, save through the mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. For there is not another name given to men under heaven in which we must be saved. Neither is there any ransoming of men from captivity, save in his blood. Just as Hebrews chapter 1 puts it, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whose word we can have in our hands and must keep in our hearts and before our eyes. Others may offer us a revelation from angels. Sounds impressive. But Christ is supreme over the angels, says Hebrews, superior to them with a more excellent name, the definitive and final revelation of God. For to which of the angels did God ever say, let all God's angels worship him and your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This, therefore, is what the Bible says about Jesus. He is our unique, our only saviour. As I pointed out in, um, in a recent book uh, published at the beginning of this year by Church Society, A Gospel Flourishing in a Time of Confusion, the early church was not just evangelistic, it was also exclusive. Edward Gibbon says in The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire that one of the prime reasons for the rapid growth of the church 
was, quote, the inflexible, and if we may use the expression, the intolerant zeal of Christians. They were convinced that they were right, and other gods and other religions were not. Unlike the devotees of pagan gods, Christians were expected to become devoted to one god alone and abstain from other cultic practices. This is one of the main reasons that Christianity took over the Roman Empire. One might think, says Bart Ehrman, in his study of the rise of the early church, that this exclusionary insistence would be off-putting and offensive in a world filled with gods, dooming the Christian mission to failure. But on the contrary, it had the opposite effect. It was this claim that led to the triumph of Christianity. See, there's an unparalleled novelty in this approach, which shocked the pagan world of Greece and Rome. Every convert to Christianity was a loss to the pagan world. The old gods were destroyed as Christianity advanced, which was not true when people simply changed allegiance from one ancient god to another, because they could just add those in. One pagan god added to another in a pluralistic culture that is very happy with huge diversity. Just add another one. If Christianity, therefore, had been evangelistic but not exclusive, it may have made some converts, but it would have been subsumed along with other pluralistic practices, and paganism would not have been affected. There'd have been no dint in it in the long term. Christ would have just been added to the pantheon of gods that you could worship if you wanted to. The very exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone is what helped to preserve and grow the early church. So a pluralistic culture that disliked exclusive truth claims was not necessarily detrimental to the gospel. And neither is a pluralistic culture today an excuse for us to keep quiet and not keep speaking this truth. Preaching the only way to salvation, there's only one way through Jesus, attracted followers and depleted the ranks of paganism as it did so. That was the precise culture in which Christianity grew. And it grew not by radical inclusion and unconditional affirmation of everything and everyone, but by virtue of its unique and exclusive claims. This has always been the faith of the church, the faith uniquely revealed in the Holy Scriptures. That's my first point. Secondly, more briefly, our faith is revealed in the Holy Scriptures and also set forth in the Catholic creeds. The Nicene Creed sets forth our belief in the universal church, uh, the belief of the universal church, rather, that there is one God, one Lord, one Spirit. We declare in the creed that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. There is no other Son, no greater revelation of God. For us and for our salvation, this Son of God came down from heaven 
He was crucified, died and buried. And on the third day was physically, bodily, literally, gloriously risen from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Right now. That's where he is. Our advocate. Our only mediator. And the propitiation for our sins. From heaven he came and sought us to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought us and for our life he died. And one day, the creed says, he will return from heaven to judge the living and the dead. All of them. And his kingdom will have no end. Unlike all the kingdoms of the world up to now. So there's no space in that creedal confession for different paths up the same mountain or a variety of different visions of the future, is there? The future is Jesus. And so the future is bright for those who repent of their rebellion against Jesus and trust in his word. It is not so bright for those who refuse to listen to the spirit who speaks in scripture and gives life to those who kiss the son in humble repentance and faith. They will have no part in the life of the world to come if they refuse to be part of the church, the assembly of Jesus' people on earth. This is the faith of the scriptures. It's the faith set forth in the Catholic creeds. It is also, thirdly and finally, the faith to which the historic Anglican formularies bear witness. They do not bear witness to a more malleable faith, a flexible, worldly faith, which changes with the seasons and the changeable diktats of human convenience. No, as you know, Article 18 of the 39 Articles is very clear. Very clear. It is headed of the obtaining eternal salvation only by the name of Christ. I mean, it's right there in the title. You don't need to read the rest of it. There it is in the title. You obtain eternal salvation only by the name of Christ. Having condemned certain errors in a previous article, we now hear in Article 18 a rare Anglican anathema in this, our confession and inheritance of faith. Article 18 says, let me read it for you. It's up there on the screen. They also are to be had accursed that presume to say, that every man should be saved by the law or sect to which he professeth, so that he be diligent to frame his life according to that law and the light of nature. For Holy Scripture doth set unto us only the name of Jesus Christ, whereby men must be saved. Now the article originally said that we should abhor this universalistic doctrine that everyone is saved as long as they're sincere. It said we should abhor that doctrine, though I think that's pretty much implied by the curse pronounced upon that doctrine in the article as we have it. Thomas Cranmer's proposed law, canon law reform, the Reformation era canon law, the Reformatio Legum Ecclesiasticarum, says that the heresy denounced in this article is horrible. It's insane. It is daring. 
to suggest that any religion sincerely followed, or even just the law of nature, the light of nature, can lead anyone to eternal life. Because it cannot. And it is not loving or kind of us to pretend otherwise. Now, I know when you look at that article, so casuistry says that technically uh, it may say here that we might be saved in another religion, just not by another religion. Because it says uh, we shouldn't believe people are saved by the law or sect that they profess. But I don't think the Bible or the article really allows for that kind of let's find a loophole approach to this question. Sincerity is no guide to truth. That's what it's saying, isn't it? Other religions are no guide to truth. For Holy Scripture doth set out unto us only the name of Jesus Christ, whereby men must be saved. The Anglican reformers urged us to confess our sins to God, our manifold sins and wickedness. We are miserable offenders, pitiable. We are unworthy sinners. Our biggest and most pressing problem as the human race It's not psychological, it's not economic. The biggest problem and issue facing Britain today is not Brexit. Our problem is that God is angry with our sin and we need to be forgiven for it. So as Article 2 puts it, Christ came to reconcile his father to us. And in the communion service, in the Book of Common Prayer, we are assured by the words of Scripture itself that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That he is the propitiation for our sins. We come to the Lord's table, therefore, not trusting in our own righteousness, but in God's manifold and great mercies. So the prayer book directs us to the one place where forgiveness and peace can be found in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anglicans, praise God in one of our post-communion prayers that by the merits and death of thy son Jesus Christ and through faith in his blood, we and all thy whole church may obtain remission of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. Part of that means, as the prayer book says, we must pray for Jews, Turks and infidels and heretics to be fetched home to Christ and saved. It's a lovely way of putting it, isn't it? That those people should be fetched home to Christ. Because Cranmer cared not just for little old England, but for the salvation of the world. Now the world is literally here, on our doorsteps in England, in a multicultural, multi-religious nation that Cranmer would, you know, he'd be, he'd be amazed by that, the nation that we have around us today. And shall we neglect to pray for the salvation of those who are in our communities? Wolfgang Musculus, who's a sort of contemporary of Cranmer, a reformed professor of theology in Bern during the Reformation, complained to his compatriots. He said, alas, our depravity. Why do we not imitate the humanity of Christ? Why are we so inhumane towards foreigners and immigrants? 
Why do we not seize the opportunity for making known and extending the knowledge of Christ? Now, I love England. I love the people of England. But to truly love our neighbours as ourselves, all of our neighbours who happen to live now in this island of ours, whoever they are, wherever they come from, we've got to introduce them to the way, the truth and the life. The one who alone can satisfy and save them. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins and also for the sins of the whole world. This is not what I'm saying to you here. This is not, as Justin Welby put it recently, cultural imperialism, coercion, or the selling of a commodity. This is the Great Commission. That Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. We are then to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded us. And he will be with us always as we carry out that commission until he comes again. It's because the world doesn't know him that it is so confused and muddled about everything else. And it's because the church doesn't treasure him as the unique and only saviour of the world that we are divided and depleted and depressed so much of the time. If we recover this, we recover all. Because Jesus is the inexhaustible fountain of all good things for those who listen and bow to him alone. So let's pray now. Let's pray, compelled by the love of God and the uniqueness of Christ, our only saviour, that we will take this good news of Jesus to the cities and the suburbs, the villages, the estates, and the many different peoples of this beautiful land. Not crudely, not carelessly, but compassionately and clearly. The task is urgent and it is essential because there is no other name by which we must be saved. Let's pray the collect or prayer for all conditions of men from the Book of Common Prayer where we pray for all people and especially for the universal church. O God, the creator and preserver of all mankind, we humbly beseech thee for all sorts and conditions of men, that thou wouldst be pleased to make thy ways known unto them, thy saving health unto all nations. More especially, we pray for the good estate of the Catholic Church, that it may be so guided and governed by thy good spirit that all who profess and call themselves Christians may be led into the way of truth and hold the faith in unity of spirit, in the bond of peace and in righteousness of life. And this we beg for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.
Thanks very much, Lee. We've, we've got plenty of time for questions, so if you have any, I can direct them and allow Lee to focus on answering the questions. Adam. So you're sat there eating cucumber sandwiches with dear old Gladys, and she says, I just can't understand how a loving God could condemn someone living in Japan who's never heard of Jesus or the Bible. How do you apply that, and how do you respond to dear old Gladys? Oh, because Gladys is saying that to me. Yeah. I see. Um, I don't understand all the ways of God either. I mean, I've been overeducated in theology and history and all these things and in the Bible, but I don't understand all the ways of God and why the gospel has been to some places and borne fruit and gone to other places and not borne any fruit and has not reached certain people. I don't know. And I don't understand his ways in every way. But I do know from, from what, what I, I do, what I have grasped of God from his word and his ways is that he's good and he's just. And no one is going to get to the last day on judgment day and look back and say, yeah, God botched that. He made a mess of that. He got that wrong, that decision, where the gospel should go who should be saved, who should not be saved, who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. So I know he's good, and I know he's just. And so when there are things that I don't understand, I have to lean on his goodness and his justice. I've not come up with a better answer than that. That's where I actually am. I, I don't know the answer. Does anyone know another answer, a better answer than that? I'm happy to hear it and give it next time I meet Betty. So one of the things today that, because I think it's, it's, a fair, it's a fair question, I think people say, so who are those people you are thinking of? Because in so many places and cultures, they have heard the Christian myth, story, whatever. Yeah. So actually, you're actually talking about a very tiny number of tribes, basically, in the middle of nowhere. Whereas the majority of people, they haven't counted the gospel. So there's an interesting question. So what's it look like for someone who hasn't counted the gospel? say, no, I'm rejecting that. Yeah. So that's another side. I like that. That's good. And also to make it concrete as well. I mean, if there are people who haven't heard the gospel, well, I guess, Gladys, that's up to me and you to go and make sure that they do find out. So what can we do? I mean, maybe, you know, you're a bit old now, Gladys, at 86. Uh, uh, you don't want to go yourself. But is there some work that we could support financially or in prayer to get the gospel out? That is still part of our commission. So we want that to happen. And if, if they really do want it to happen, not just to, you know, have a theoretical, philosophical conversation, then that's the way to go. Let, let's, let's get on board with the Great Commission. Jesus cares about those people. He came to die for people. So let's make sure everybody hears. Tom. Um, just, it, to, to a great extent, as I'm sure you're aware, you're, you're preaching to the choir on the, the uniqueness of Christ. Um, I'm thinking about ways in which we might be under pressure to um, compromise on this or be seen to be compromising on it. And I guess with the Church of England's position, with the parish system, cure of souls for everyone in the parish and the rest of it, there is some expectation of interfaith, faith community stuff. Yeah. Civic occasions, uh, responding to national crises, um, what have you worked out 
to be the limits of what we can in good conscience do as parish priests in in this area. Where are the where are your personal red lines? How do you arrive at them? Well, I think we can pray for everybody. So we can pray for anybody and everybody um, that they would come to know Christ. One Timothy two tells us to pray for all kinds of people, and that's what that that prayer in the BCP. Um, comes from you know that we should pray for everybody and so I'm happy to meet up with anybody and talk to anybody about Jesus and to pray for anybody um, anytime any place anywhere almost um, I think it would be wrong for us to give any public impression that all religions lead to God which is the basic default presumption of the secular age we live in you know there's atheists and most of us over here secularists and there's those religious types and they're, they're all basically the same aren't they so we must do everything we can to avoid giving that impression and do anything we can to subvert it so i think you know doing a, some sort of multi-faith service would be would be giving the wrong impression and would be dishonoring to christ Please, yeah. Yeah, do. Um, no so i mean i completely agree multi-faith service or multi um prayer on, on ruling out uh, and I think probably most here would do the same um, playing a cricket match with the imams as we did in Lancashire would be <laughs> why not, why not of course, fine. but then I think there's a number of things in the middle where I don't know what I would do, so for instance a act of remembrance at the centre where there are prayers, probably Anglican prayers just as we are the established church but you're there with the seat and the window. Or um, in Blackpool, we had recently some response to a council consultation, and there was the faith forum, which is um, set up by the council and yeah. it's signed by faith leaders. You know, could you add your signature to that? Well, I have signed. I have signed letters to the newspapers and things like that, along with faith leaders from all the other religions in the country: Jews, uh, Muslims, Sikhs, okay. Hindus. I have signed letters to do with um, things where we have common concern, so co-belligerent things on um, same-sex marriage, on abortion, issues like that, I'm happy to find common cause with people of all religions. You provided I'm not making the, giving the impression... Yes. No, there is no single faith community. All the, we talk about community all the time nowadays. There is no LGBT community. No, there isn't one. And there is no faith community in the same way of people who all believe in faith. That's a community, that's a group maybe, but they never gather. They don't think about the same things. They don't think of themselves as the same. So, yeah, I think that you're right. I mean, at St. Helens, um, I did something called a meeting for better understanding. So I lived in East End. I had to walk past the East London Mosque to get to St. Helens from my house. So we got to know the people there at the mosque. We had an event at St. Helens um, and then another place, um, neutral venue sometimes, where we'd have a Christian speaker saying, you know, he'd have 15 minutes to say something that we wanted to say, and then anyone on the floor could ask questions. And then we'd have a Muslim speaker saying some things that they wanted to say, and then 15 minutes of question and answer. And this wasn't a, a service or anything like that. It wasn't multi-ethnic worship, multi-religious um, worship. But we heard each other, listened respectfully, and asked questions. That was brilliant. I mean, we wanted to do it because the word of God is living and active and powerful and is the way that people become converted. And, and we would hope as they heard the gospel, that would have an effect. Andrew, do you have something to chip in on this? I think the language of people of faith is really unhelpful for the unbeliever. And I think we want to just deny that as often as we can. Everybody's got faith.
Um, and so people of faith, is, it sounds sensible in our culture, but since faith and belief and trust are synonyms, we stand together as people of trust. It's crazy. Yeah. So we want to be talking about the object of our faith. And that's why, so when Bishop Richard Chartres, after the London bombings, made a public statement, we stand united as people of faith. It's colossally unhelpful for the atheist, the agnostic, listening in. So I think you could argue that actually does harm to the gospel. And therefore you I think that could be right, yeah. try and avoid that, because we want to talk about the object of faith. We want to remind atheists that they're living by faith too. Uh, and that's, Amen. We have to try and do no harm to the gospel. Yeah. There's a danger that if we stand united as people of faith, we're actually doing gospel harm. Like yes. Otherwise, I thought your answer was fantastic useful, and I wrote most of them. Was I? I mean, I agree with you. That's exactly what I think too. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, also having readings from the Quran or from the Bhagavad Gita or something in your church service would be extremely unhelpful. New question. Yeah. 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 Um, A bit more personal, if that's okay. Um, What do you think are the main competitors to Christ's uniqueness amongst those who would happily come to a Jacob? So not in the church, even wider or culture. Well, I, yeah, that's a good question. And I, I see the reason I want to talk about this is I know I'm preaching to the choir. Probably, probably many of us would agree with the things that I've said. Probably, um, but not all of us. And there are people in who would call themselves evangelical who don't agree with what I've just said. Any of it, they think it's extremely arrogant. A group was set up a number of years ago. Um, during the National Evangelical Anglican Congress in, uh, in Blackpool. While we're all together, you know, celebrating our unity as evangelicals, a group was set up, and their kind of big pitch was, you know, we need to be more open to learning from other religions and from other traditions. And I think, well, okay, other, other church traditions, maybe, but other religions? That was part of their manifesto. And that, that's a group that's continued in the church, and I think that's deeply flawed. I also think there are lots of people who, are, who would call themselves evangelical now um, who have gone off on massive tangents in terms of our sexual ethics and so on. I just said we didn't want to talk about that all the time. But I think underlying that is that previously on their journey, they'd also denied this, that Jesus is the only way. Because obviously, isn't it? once you've denied that Jesus is the only way, you can take wisdom from elsewhere uh, and, and, and you don't need to just follow what he says. I think this underlies lots of the problems we're having in sexuality within evangelicalism. And it also underlies some of the splits between open and conservative in some places. Hopefully we've moved on from that, and and people on the more open side of things wouldn't say that. But I think there are some people, Richard Rohr and some others, um, whose books you may have to read in college, who very much would go down this route of denying the uniqueness of Christ in evangelical circles. Ross, chip in. Yeah, just I think um, the uniqueness of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ go very closely together. And I think often, maybe for some of us, that's a, a more likely danger is that we fall into the, of course, we must trust in Christ, but also, and, and there's a, a sort of, you know, you must also believe in this doctrine or have this tradition or present in this way. Management techniques, conferences that you have to go to. Um, and I, yeah, and I think 
once we start adding those things, we actually also undermine the unique surprise by undermining the sufficiency. So that may be another way in which this is negative for us. Other people may have seen it themselves, I don't know. Very helpful. I'm going to Michael first. How should we respond were someone in leadership over us in the church to deny the uniqueness of Christ? Tell them to Jake. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, all the stuff we've talked about here, in t- I mean, can ask, ask them, well, given what you just said to me, denying the uniqueness of Christ, I was reading John 14 the other day at a conference, and it said this, how do I reconcile the two? You know, from a junior position, you can ask you know, na- the naive question. Oh, because it's interesting, because I was learning that the Anglican 39 articles say that um, we believe that you know, only Jesus is the way to be saved. How do I square that with what you've just taught me? Vicar, or whoever it is, bishop, um, whoever said it. So I think you can ask the question, how these things chime. I mean, of course... Most people in the Church of England haven't read the 39 articles and wouldn't know that that is official Anglican doctrine. Okay, let's say we've done all that, we've asked the question, and the answer comes back, no, just flat-out refusal. To believe that stuff? Yeah. Yes. What do we do then? Yeah. Well, I would avoid such a person and not invite them to speak in my pulpit, if, were I in a position to do so. I mean, I've met people like that. You know, you, people who are absolute universalists think everyone will be saved in the end um, by whatever sect they profess or don't profess. And there's no way I would let that person anywhere near any of the little ones in my church or, or the big ones because that's going to that's gonna lead people astray. Last question. Yeah, just a quick one, hopefully. In, so in Article 18, what, what does... What does law and sect mean? What are law and sect? And is that elaborating something? I think it's kind of indicted. He's saying um, it's the same thing. So any other um, sect or belief system, we might say just belief system. It's trying to get at two different ways of describing that. Like a sect sounds like it's talking about Baptists. <laughs> um, <laughs> not in the way we currently have Baptists, you know but he may be talking about the Anabaptists. But he, he's also talking about People, universalist types, and um, people like Oregon in the early church, who allegedly had this doctrine of universalism. Is that elaborated somewhere in the homilies? Uh, the homilies do do have a go. Yeah, do talk about this. And if you read the Reformatio Legum Ecclesiasticarum, it does talk about people who hold to this insane, delusional, horrible doctrine. Um, so it's, it talks about those people. So there obviously were people saying those things. It's a common human thing, isn't it? Oh, we'll all be saved as long as we're sincere. But yeah, there are actually people saying that. No, it was more just specifically what Laura said, actually. I think it probably, in that context, it's Anabaptists, it's Catholics, it's other kind of radical people, it's atheists, it's people who are just wanting to live by the light of nature, and so on. Thank you. Look at um, the first commentary on the 39 articles. It would have on what we sex. Some of them work. Does he list some of them? Oh, well, there we go. They're all, they're all kind of Baptist sects, basically, with all funny names and whatnot. Yes. But he does go into, if I remember rightly, in his Menno article, Simons and Hubmeyer and people yeah, like that. Which, which, if you look at them now, we have no idea who they were. But at his time, there was still a memory of who these particular sects so were. Who wrote that? Uh, Thomas Rogers. Rogers, Thomas Rogers, yeah. It's available online. Adam will send you a link. 
And on the Jake bookstore? No, it's not no, on the no, Jake no. bookstore, unfortunately. <laughs> it should be. Modern, modern <laughs> translation. Yeah, no, it's a good, good idea. Thanks very much, Lee. Um, let's respond to what we've heard about Christ, the fountain of all goodness, in the words of our final song, In Christ Alone. As we stand a final prayer, we praise you so much, Lord, that the Lord Jesus is your definitive and final revelation, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, our unique and only Savior. Please renew our confidence in him and in his gospel. Please calm our troubled hearts and move us to put our hope in Jesus, the one who goes before us, preparing a place for us in your house. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.